Thank you for downloading this show. Osher Ginsberg here. Today, Josh Zepps is on the show. It's going to be pretty good. Now, I'm grateful you're here, and podcasts, as you know, podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So the business model is thus. I need to pay Andy, who's cutting this episode, and Rachel, who helps me organize everything, uh, my audio producer and show producer, I need to pay them. To do that, occasionally you'll hear a commercial. More about commercials in just a sec. But if you do hear a commercial, thank you. You're helping me pay Andy and Rachel. If you don't hear a commercial, hurrah. You won the lotto and you're just going to hear Josh say something awesome. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I have never felt more constrained by political and cultural orthodoxies and I've never felt that it's more hazardous to think out loud in ways that buck conventional wisdom than it is now. If you tell me what you believe about say Black Lives Matter I can probably guess what you believe about climate change the monarchy, corporate tax rates <laughs> whether or not transgender teenagers should be given hormone blockers and these are completely separate Subjects, they have nothing to do with each other. Why are we all cleaving along predictable partisan lines? So I, I feel like I'm, we're in a yacht regatta and every sailboat is going in one of two directions and I want to make the world safe for people who want to chart their own course and not think about things through such predictable prisms. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here this fine, fine, fine Monday. It's Osha here. It's the 14th of September 2020, and I'm grateful you're on the show today because Josh Zepps is on the show today. Josh Zepps is a broadcaster and a podcaster. You can hear him on the ABC. He's got a new podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations. If you've never listened to this show before, this show is called Better Than Yesterday because that's what it tries to do. It tries to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something you hear on the show today will help you, hopefully, 
uh, make today just a little bit better than yesterday. Actually, no, I'm going to guarantee that it will. There you go. I'm going to guarantee that it will. Now, I'm here twice a week. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And um, if you want to be a part of the Friday episode, it's actually kind of fun. I started doing this last week. You can jump on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Oshie and subscribe and just keep an ear on Thursday. And I'll, uh, I'll pop on on Thursday and I'll um, have a bit of a chat and we'll just do a bit of a Q&A. And that's how Thursday's episodes have been uh, showing up lately, which is a lot of fun. Twitch.tv slash Oshie is where you can find me. You can also email me if you like. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Uh, always love to hear uh, any feedback. Also great uh, when you do leave a review in the iTunes store or recommend this show to somebody else that really helps me and helps us here at the show get more shows made. Uh, but you can email me real easy. Send us your email at gmail.com. Bianca wrote an email to say, uh, just wanted to give you a heads up that an ad for BHP opened the podcast on Friday. <laughs> uh, I know you're interested in having sponsors and advertising that align with your values. <laughs> you're right, Bianca. You're damn right. Uh, okay, just a little bit about podcast advertising. A lot of it's quite automated, Bianca. And as the podcasts, uh, as the ads get ingested into the system, sometimes that something can go wrong with the tagging of the, of the ads. I've only had it happen once before with a political ad. And depending, like depending on where you listen and where you are geographically when you download the episode, that will tell the server what kind of ad it should give you. You know, say, for example, I listened to an episode twice in this last week. The first time I downloaded it, I was in Victoria, and the ads I got were, stay indoors, Victoria wants to keep... And it was all about, you know, COVID stuff from Victoria, authorised by the Victorian government, Victoria, or whatever. And then I listened to the same episode here in um, uh, New South Wales, and it was an ad for a telco. And if you listen to the show in Sweden... As people have told me uh, quite a bit, if you listen to the show in Sweden, the ads that come on are uh, in Swedish and therefore Swedish telecommunications companies advertising rad deals on your download data. But I appreciate that, Bianca. I appreciate you giving me the heads up. I'll let the team know about that because I do try to keep those sorts of things out of the ear holes of the people that listen to this show. And uh, you can be sure that whenever you do get an ad from me where I'm actually going, this podcast is brought to you by, like me and Rachel have vetted that and we have been through the client and we've made sure that we are in alignment because it's really important to me that you know that I would never say something out, I would never read an ad for something that I didn't believe in, I didn't get behind because that's the beauty of podcast advertising. But Bianca, thank you so very much. And she sent a fantastic picture of what she's looking at while she's listening. Homemade kombucha. Hello. Magnificent. Been away for 18 years and back cooking with mum in the kitchen. Brilliant. Thanks heaps, Chris, for emailing as well. Uh, sent a cracking picture of the car park. I've attached a picture of where I end up finishing off your episodes. The car park at my work isn't as pretty as some of the pics you get, but I'm sure uh, you'll understand this is where I listen. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that you do listen to the show and you, you, you dig it so much that when you get to work, you're like, no, nah, I'm just going to go and not going to go in just yet. Just going to finish this app off. Just going to wrap this one up. That is sick. And yeah, actually, Chris noticed this, which is kind of interesting. There was a noticeable change in your voice between the lockdown episodes and the one at home. It was nice to hear. Yeah, I guess there was, Chris. Yeah, I don't notice it because it's just me speaking, but I'm, I'm guessing the nuances were most definitely there, Chris. Thanks, heaps. I really appreciate you reaching out. Send us your email at gmail.com is where you can find me. Shannon sent a beautiful picture um, from Orange. There's been some much-needed rain. Shannon sent me some pictures over the summertime. Did not look like this. This photo's far greener. Thank you very much, Shannon. And a lovely one here from Julia. Listening to your podcast with Sarah Wilson on my way to do a 10 and a half hour shift at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, enjoying the morning work before hitting the madness 
rejoicing in the advice about resilience from Sarah and wishing everyone would listen to the advice of only trying to control what you can and let the rest be. And then you go past me, you on a Melbourne tram. <laughs> She's taken a photo. I'm still, me and Jeff Probst to rolling around Melbourne on a big blue tram. And what's wild, Julia, is that that photo is from the first season of Bachelor in Paradise when I was still on the tricyclic. So I'm probably oh, 93 kilos, 94 kilos. I'm about 77 right now. So there's me on a tram rolling around nearly 20 kilos heavier than I am right now. And it's been that way for about, that's fine. You know, but just, it's interesting. And good on you, Julia. I can't imagine that healthcare work in Victoria at the moment is easy work, but thank you very much for doing it. It's a heavy situation there in Victoria, my word, and I really hope that uh, you guys can pull through because uh, if you don't pull through, we can't pull through because we're all stuffed. If uh, Melbourne doesn't get back on board, the whole country's going down economically, socially, you name it. So we've got to help our friends out. Help our Victorian friends out. They really, really, really need us. Thanks to anybody that did rate and review the show in iTunes. That does help me a lot. And um, if you did recommend this show to anybody across the week, I'm really grateful for that because new listeners are uh, a big deal and it really means the world when you do do that. Like I said, if you want to jump on Thursday, just jump on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Osher and it'll send you a notification. If you follow me on Twitch, it'll send you a notification on when I'm live. Just jump on there and we'll have a bit of a yarn. And that'll hopefully become the Friday episode. Now, before we get into Josh, if conversations about uncomfortable things are your bag, uh, then you may want to enjoy episode 282 of this show with Jonathan Haidt. You may need to scroll back a wee bit, like 70 episodes or something, but he's a pretty spectacular human being. It's a really good episode. He's an author. He's a tenured professor at NYU Stern University. He's a, a cracking chat. And um, here's a little taste. We are tribal creatures who are constantly at each other's throats. And when we look ahead to the future, we see more of the same. And some of us say, enough. In a time of polarization, when there's a lot of hatred, you can pretty much guarantee that each side has a piece of the truth, but not the whole truth. So whenever you're in any dispute, you look for where the other side has something that they're right about or where your side has been wrong. And then you start by saying that, and it has a magical effect on people. Even if I think you're wrong on every point, to at least acknowledge that I think you're sincere in your motives, even that's a concession. So a a nice thing happened when Twitter doubled its size from whatever, 120 to 240 characters. I discovered that it's actually possible in 240 characters to say sometimes, I agree with you on X, but on Y, I think it's this. And that has an amazing effect on people. It sort of cuts off the flame wars. So that's the word for 2019, nuance. That's Jonathan Haidt, episode 282 of this show. Scroll back through your feed to find it. But let's get on with Josh. So let me tell you about my guest today. Josh Zepps is a broadcaster from Sydney, Australia via... New York City. He can be heard on ABC Radio and on his excellent podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations. Find it where you find your podcasts. Now, I've known Josh for quite some time. We first worked together on Australian Idol early 2000s, somewhere around there. We crossed paths a few times since then when we both lived in the USA. And now we're back Both of us are back in in Australia, and he has been very kind to have me on his ABC radio show a few times, and he's been on this show a number of times. Josh is no stranger to podcasts. He has been an invited and featured guest on Joe Rogan's show, I don't know how many times. 
And certainly with his own show, Uncomfortable Conversations, he absolutely leans into that similar vein that he comes from when he speaks with Joe. He really leans into the issues of polarity that we're having in the world today. And it's it's important to listen to what he's got to say, I feel, which is why we're having this conversation today. I'm grateful that Josh is in the world. He's brave. He's powerful. He's funny. And he thinks about things in a way that I'm truly, truly envious of. If you do like what you hear, I'd encourage you to get into his work at Uncomfortable Conversations. Find it where you find your podcast or check him out on ABC Radio. I believe he's in Radio National every again. He's one of those guys that floats between Radio National and 702 in Sydney. You can also find him on Twitter and Instagram, Josh Zepps, J-O-S-H-S-Z-E-P-S. S-Z-E-P-S is how he spells his last name. So enjoy this conversation this semi-uncomfortable conversation with Josh Zepps. Hello, Josh Zepps. Hello, Osha. How are you? I wish we were together. It's fine. It's fine. This is all fine. This is okay. Is this me being okay now? Are we okay now? Are we all okay being we're remote? Okay. Okay. No, we're okay. Because I've, I've been doing some work lately and uh, the amount of PPE required mm. to be near somebody in my line of business is um yeah lots i know but there's a there's some there's a, there's a happy sweet spot in between your level of channel 10 induced caution and for example the party that i went to on saturday night where the moment i walked in the backyard everyone came over and started basically french kissing me and I was like, whoa, 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 what are we doing? We're not there yet. And they're like, oh, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. I was like, no, we're so, I'm still socially distancing. I'm still, I'm sorry. I'll tap your elbow. I'll tap your foot. And then I was getting shit the whole night. So I feel like there's a large array of different responses that we're currently inhabiting. We're here to talk about your, your new podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations. And I think that it, we, can, we can start. There's an uncomfortable there's conversation. An uncomfortable conversation, yeah. That we need to have. And that, in the words of the great Australian rapper Briggs, 10,000 people didn't go to Bondi Beach on the 13th of March out of spite. They went because they didn't understand or it hadn't been communicated to them clearly enough why it was important that they didn't go mm. on a lovely, nice day. All right? So, similarly, that house party you went to, these are people that haven't been communicated to clearly enough. Like, no, you can't just, you, yes, you can have people over, but that doesn't mean you're having people over. Like, it doesn't mean you can lick my tongue when I arrive. That's all. That's my only request. You can lick my feet. Don't lick my tongue. But here's an uncomfortable conversation to have with you, uh, Usher, and with other people amongst uh, the listenership who think that, that it's crazy that anyone would go to Bondi Beach with a bunch of other people. I suspect that part of the reason why people are skeptical of the official orthodoxy on this and why people are taking more risks than perhaps they should be is because the more cautious science-based people like ourselves have been unwilling to give them even an inch on ways in which we might have been initially wrong. So it turns out in hindsight that probably the disease is not that infectious when you're outside in the sun. It just doesn't seem like environments where that's been taking place have seen the kinds of upticks that you would expect. But because we want to be hyper-cautious, we poo-poo anyone who expresses any scepticism towards this being the worst pandemic in the history of the world as being an anti-science, Trump-supporting idiot, whereas I think there would be an uncomfortable conversation to straddle between the two poles where you could say, all right, maybe some of our initial fears were overblown. That's great. It hasn't gone as badly as we thought it might, even in places that didn't have as much of a handle on it as they should, like parts of the southern United States, for example and parts of Western Europe, Germany. But uh, that doesn't mean that you can lick my tongue. 
again, lick the feet, not the tongue. I would say that's right. You know, I think part of being, I'm not going to use the word woke, part of being awakened to truth, reality, and skepticism and the fine line that you have to have around being skeptical is also to go, well, why did I ask a question in the first place? Because I didn't know the truth or I didn't know what was the closest thing to reality that I could accept with another human being. And if I want to constantly find myself in that place, I have to be willing to question, okay, so this is what I'm accepting today. It, it might not be true tomorrow and have this fine kind of trying to find the wind with the sail where the, the sweet spot is mm. of being questioning, not so much that you just will fall for anything. So it's not hide inside your house and don't come outside ever time, but it is, you know, let's be mindful that you know, there are some people, I work with immunocompromised people. There are people in my life, in my direct sphere of of living that would be in grave mortal danger if they were to contract COVID-19. Mm. So keeping that in mind, that I could be the vector is an important, important factor. And that kind of leads my questioning, I guess, is like, what can I get away with? What can I do? How can I engage in my life, in my work? in my socialising and yet still be aware that I'm trying to protect these people whom I love very much. I think that's right. And I think the easy way actually to connect with people who are a little bit more sceptical about it, and this goes not just for coronavirus, but for all of the hot button cultural and political issues that we can get into and that caused me to create this podcast where I can have uncomfortable conversations that don't exist within the partisan spheres of what we're supposed to, to say, d- depending on our political allegiances. Yeah. One easy way that I find of getting a- around the problem is to think about yourself as behaving in terms of general rules rather than specific concerns about what might happen. So take the example, for example, of how we think about seatbelts in cars. I remember going to Tonga when I was a teenager on a cultural exchange and I lived on this little Tongan island for a month uh, with a family (laughs) and I got to meet the princess and all this shit. It was great. And then I wear seatbelts. Every time I got in their cars and put on a seatbelt, they would interpret that as me being a hysterical ninny who thought we were going to get in an accident every time I got in a car. I don't wear a seatbelt because I think I'm going to get in an accident every time I get in a car. I wear a seatbelt because we've all agreed that if all of us wear seatbelts every single time, then overall, statistically, many fewer of us will die. So it's a good rule of thumb to abide by. And that was my thinking when I went to this party on Saturday night and saw everyone breaking the rules and scoffing at me. It reminded me of being in Tonga getting in a car when they're scoffing at me for being such a ninny that I think that I'm going to catch coronavirus from them. I don't think I'm going to catch coronavirus from them. And if I did catch coronavirus from them, I don't think that I'm going to die. But I want, I want us all to abide by a set of principles during a pandemic that will minimise the overall spread. So let's just rule out hugging and kissing each other until it's over. Like, where's the harm in not shaking people's hands anymore? So I think that's a way around. And, and if people say, oh, look, the original estimates were crazy overblown. They were talking about millions of people dying. We ditched the economy just for this. I'm perfectly happy to say, all right, maybe the original estimates were overblown, but what's your policy, what's your rule of thumb that we should all abide by when pandemics erupt? Is your rule of thumb, we should assume that they're going to be on the most benign side, therefore we should do the smallest amount. Well, that is a, a policy that's guaranteed to lead to massive catastrophe when, when the big one does come and it is worse than we thought. 
So surely the rule of thumb that we should all be applying is when a pandemic erupts, assume that it's really, really bad, go a bit overboard, save lives as much as you can, and then ensure that you're implementing a policy that you all agree is likely to be the most useful to get out of it. Don't keep nitpicking at me about whether or not we overshot because overshooting is much better than undershooting. I've got a mate of mine that work in the Gulf and these are states that went through uh, MERS only a couple of years ago, uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, I believe it was called. MERS has a mortality rate of 30%. So if you've got 10 friends and 10 people get it, three of them will die. It's a very close cousin to coronavirus. It was fucked up. But within days, Josh, within days, they went, oh, we know what to do here. And if you wanted to go to the shops, you had to apply online for a basically like a deli ticket. Mm. And they, great, go get your supermarket. You get to go to the supermarket between 9.20 and 9.50. And it's this supermarket. And don't arrive any earlier. Don't leave any later. And there you go. Because they, they knew what they had to do. Yeah. And everyone just went, oh, yeah, we remember this. And they locked in step because they saw how devastating it was when you get a, a, a bug that does have a mortality rate that is far higher, mm. how it can absolutely just destroy a community. I think you're right. Generally, we we wouldn't accept when you look at OH&S around the workplace. We wouldn't accept, oh, look, it's not that bad. So you really don't need anyone to hold a ladder when you're above the fifth step. But we have looked back at all the workplace accidents and go, well, the amount of people that have hurt themselves terribly and the amount of people that have died when they stand above the fifth step indicate to us that it's probably best we have someone hold the ladder. Although now you're swinging me to the other to the other side. Now I just have visions of television projects that I've worked on or movies that I've worked on where you're like, uh, mate, can you just move that? And they go, oh, no, can't do that. OH&S rules, mate. Not in my contract. The union says we can't. I'm not just move the fucking ladder. Just come on. It's all right. Just do it now. Quickly, please. That's me. Oh, that's because you worked in America. <laughs> that's right. In America, no one can do anything. But this is an uncomfortable conversation. Is like those unions in America that you've worked with and I've worked with, they were put in place because horrible exploitation of workers was happening. People were getting hurt, sick, and dying purely because those in power were like, well, I don't care. We're going to work 18 straight hours. Then I'm going to ask you to drive a truck down this dodgy road. Um, mm, <laughs> and, mm. You know. And you'll fall asleep with a wheel. So for people who aren't quite as inside the industry as us, who might not know what the difference is between the way American sets work and Australian ones, I'll just explain what we're talking about. If in the States you want anyone to do anything on a set that is not officially described by their duties, they are not permitted to do it because the union will have a total cow. And so even if it's as simple as just flicking a switch or something or turning a dial from seven up to eight on a piece of audio equipment, if it's not an audio person doing yeah. it, they're not going to do it. I mean, it's interesting, Osha, that you say that these were implemented for justifiable reasons because this also brings me to one of the overarching points that I'm trying to have conversations about now, which is overreach in reaction to a bad mm. status quo. There is nothing necessary about responding to horrifying abuses by corporations in such a way that you gum up the works and throw sand in the gears of every small production that just wants someone to turn a dial from seven up to eight. There is another alternative, which is you respond calmly and rationally and you go, okay, well, working 18-hour days for a tyrant like Mr. Burns is not great. But the, the answer is not to turn us all into Chavez's Venezuela the answer is to have a, a more sophisticated relationship between labour and management, which we probably got here and in Western Europe. Why is now the time that we need to have uncomfortable conversations? I have never felt more constrained by 
political and cultural orthodoxies. And I've never felt that it's more hazardous to think out loud in ways that buck conventional wisdom than it is now. There are people being cancelled all over the joint for supposed expressions of white supremacy, bigotry, sexism, transphobia, when what they're actually doing is trying to have conversations that articulate a deviant point of view from the mainstream. And I've always had an antipathy to where the mob is going. If the mob was going in the other direction and we were there was a some kind of a huge taboo about really anything, then I would want to be able to talk about that taboo because I think societies become corroded and corrosive when we can't talk in ways that extend the maximum amount of generosity towards one another, towards what we're actually trying to say, rather than hunting down people for saying triggering things. And this level of sort of not only conversational intolerance, but also what I call outrage archaeology, where people, where everyone turns into Twitter archaeologists going back and trying to hunt down inappropriate things that people have said at some point that, you know, forget about tearing down statues of historical figures who might have owned slaves. We're talking about hunting down what some comic might have said in 2014 that wasn't quite up to speed with the way that we think about transgender rights in 2020 and having them cancelled for it. And so I want to create a space that pushes back against that and puts people a little bit back on edge. I mean, it's extraordinary to me, for example, that if you tell me what you believe about, say, Black Lives Matter, I can probably guess what you believe about climate change, the monarchy, corporate tax rates, (laughs) whether or not transgender teenagers should be given hormone blockers. And these are completely separate subjects. They have nothing to do with each other. Why are we all cleaving along predictable partisan lines about things? So I I feel like we're in a yacht regatta and every sailboat is going in one of two directions and I'm a lone salesman with with the sails and the rigs and I'm trying to chart my own course and constantly being plonked by people into one of two other streams where I don't belong and I want to make the world safe for people who want to chart their own course and not think about things through such predictable prisms. I wonder what role the communication pathways that we have with each other have played in shepherding us into these boats of your yacht race of going in one or two directions. You know, there's the way of communicating with each other used to be verbal face-to-face you could see my face, you could see my micro expressions, you could see my hands. It was probably in company. So there were other people in the room. There were social norms that we needed to adhere to. There was, on one hand, if we were two men, the threat of violence. And, you know, if I said something that clearly upset you, I could see straight away and my body would have an instant empathic reaction to that. And I would feel your emotion inside my body because that's what humans do. Yet we are now communicating with each other. In, though it is now more than 140 characters, um, in these tiny, itty-bitty little blow darts mm. that contain none of the other information. It's just simply the word part of it. I know as a, someone who wears hearing aids, the words are, f- I think, about 7% of communication. Mm-hmm. The other 93 is everything else that I've just mentioned. Context. Where are we standing? Are we having this conversation at a supermarket? Are we having this conversation by the bedside of a mortally ill relative? Are we having this conversation with guns pointed at each other? Are we having this conversation while having sex with each other? All right. The same 
three words could mean very different things in all those situations. Especially if you're having sex with each other in a supermarket, then there's a whole different context. Uh, I'm sure there's a, a website for that somewhere. I'm sure that's <laughs> I, a I genre. Found of I found it at sexinsupermarkets.org.au. Uh, uh, so my question, my long question is, what role do you think that the channels we're using for each other is having in the way that we speak with each other and how we have become like bumper bowling mm. put in these lanes that we seem unable to get out of? A lot is the answer. I think social media has a tremendous amount to do with it. Social media is designed. I mean, you know, I did a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival last year. As you know, this was the last time I was on this podcast about social media and what it's doing to our minds and what it's doing to the way that we communicate. And, and this is a tool that is algorithmically designed to reinforce what you already believe and demonize what you don't and ramp up divisions between what different people believe and reinforce their biases. We know that about your social media feed. But beyond that, I think broader media is also doing the same thing. I think we're sort of self-selecting into tribes and consuming the kinds of conversations that we want to. I've been disturbed by the thought bubbles that emerge in all kinds of media institutions from the most august, like the New York Times. You know, they've just fired their editorial page editor for publishing an op-ed piece written by a Republican senator saying that the military should help out in quelling protests. And they got a huge backlash from their staff saying that that was an unacceptable opinion. So the, so the sort of old-fashioned idea of the media being a, a roiling place for a whole bunch of different conversations where lots of different opinions would intersect and the consequence would be you'd all be wiser for understanding your enemies better as well as just your allies has given way to a vision of the media in which you only hear from your allies and you remain, you get increasingly incomprehending of your opponents. So, you know, now apparently the attitude of the New York Times is that New York Times readers should not even understand the reasons why a Trump supporting congressman might be pushing for the military to quell protests. I mean, I don't understand how that supposedly makes it better, but this puts me on the you're an old dinosaur side of the liberalism equation instead of the we know exactly what is right and exactly what is good and we should suppress and cancel everyone who disagrees with us because they're Nazis side of the equation. So I think you're right to point to the way that we're having conversations, but I think we can also exaggerate that. It's not just social media. The vast majority of Australians aren't on Twitter, for example, which is the worst offender in all of this, I think. And they're still getting siloed. And we're still sort of, I think because the Twitter mob has expanded into the broader conversation and because corporations take like Israel Folau as like last year's big example of this, right? Israel Folau is a uh, incredibly talented football player, rugby league, rugby union player who I think he played AFL for a while as well, put out on the internet incredibly, shall we say, vocally, we would say we'd call them intolerant views. Yes, they're, they're bigoted religious views about sex and, yeah. uh, and sexuality. He was basically saying that if you're a for, like fornicators will go to hell and homosexuals will be judged and they will burn in hellfire and all this sort of nonsense. And his employer, Rugby Australia, told him to stop and he didn't stop. And so they fired him. It became a huge national furor about people's right to express their religious beliefs. Now, legally speaking, his employer did nothing wrong. You know, he signed a contract. They're allowed to get rid of him for whatever reason they want to if he signed that in, in a contract. But I was the only person I knew in media or 
my personal life who felt at all queasy about ushering in a world in which corporations responsive to bad publicity because of social justice mobs essentially dictate what their employees can and can't believe and whether they can express that belief. Do we want to live in a world in which gigantic wealthy mega corporations and governments are the arbiters of what it's appropriate to think and say? I don't feel, I mean, I'm married to a guy, so I'm one of these homosexual fornicators who Israel's talking about. But I'd love to live in a democracy which is strong enough and resilient enough and rambunctious enough and exciting enough and diverse enough to have the capacity to tolerate a whole bunch of ideas about sexuality and gender and religion. And I would assume that over the course of time, the best way to quash ancient religious bigotries like Israel's is to allow them to exist in the public square and let them decay the way that all other religious fundamentalist bigotries have over time as they get pounded down by the course of human events and the success of civil rights movements like gay marriage. A, I think it's morally unjust to be persecuting people for their genuinely held beliefs if they're not, this is assuming that they're not calling for violence against people, right? I think hate speech is a different thing. If you're saying, let's go out and lynch gay people, then you can't say that. But if you're saying that gay people are making the wrong decision and if you're gay, you're misguided, then you should try to find Christ. I think that deserves to be part of the public square, but not just because it's wrong to oppress people for what they believe and say, but also because I think it's counterproductive to our progressive side to force controversial ideas into an underground where they seem sort of naughty and persecuted. You know, we get into these conversations about neo-Nazism as well. I think at the beginning of last year, there were neo-Nazi rallies in St Kilda in Melbourne in Australia and yeah there was a whole debate about whether or not this is a resurgence of white fascism or white supremacy in Australia I mean (laughs) you looked at the photos of the guys there were about 40 losers walking around with Nazi paraphernalia one of them even had his finger underneath his nose like a Hitler moustache doing a kind of faulty towers goose-stepping salute And I was like, he's not even doing an impression of Hitler. He's doing an impression of John Cleese doing an impression of Hitler. These are people who ought to be ignored, not pushed underground and given the frisson of naughtiness that you give them when you ban what they're doing and you ban their speech and you take them really, really seriously. I mean, and now we're in a position where that episode of Faulty Towers, that Nazi episode has been pulled from all streaming services because it was too racist. So... Now we've gone so far that not only are we banning actual neo-Nazis, we're banning depictions of neo-Nazis because that episode contained naughty language. I think it was a scene where the major uses the N-word and it's to much comic effect. So now we're so fragile that we can not only, that liberal democracy can not only not tolerate actual opponents from within, but even the depiction of opponents for comedic effect. I mean, come on, what kind of censorious dictatorship are we creating here? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We seem to have found ourselves in this place where we are literally Indiana Jones in the room with the golden idol. And if we take our missteps somewhere... In any way, blow darts will fly out of the walls. And as you mentioned before, we may not realize we may have taken that misstep at 10.32 p.m. on a Tuesday night in 2011 when we were watching an ad on TV and went, I don't know what the deal with the horse racing is. If they want to do it, that's fine. Mm. (laughs) Here we are nine years later Mm. and someone like me says on television, I know I only eat plants. So they put two and two together. I was like, you yeah. can't believe a word he says. He, wants, he fucking loves horse racing. Fucking cats. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And it seems to me that if we're going to be in that situation, we're never going to touch the idol. We're going to just be static. Mm. We can't move. We can't move forward nor back. As a community, as a society, we can't progress anywhere for a move in any direction. And let's be honest. If everything was perfect, we wouldn't have to move. But we do have a fair bit of work to do. We do. And the funny thing is, Osha, that the idol in this case is something that the people blowing the darts also want us to achieve. The idol in in this, in my conjunction, if I'm understanding your uh, beautiful 1970s motion picture analogy correctly, 81, no. thank you very much. Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, one of the most perfectly written films of all time, except for the horrible scene where he murders an Arab. It's right. the worst. Okay. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible scene. I'm pretty sure I've read some essays about how misogynistic and racist Raiders of the Lost Ark is, Osha. So this is going to be archived. In 2028, someone's going to look back on this conversation and be yeah. like, I can't believe that Osha was expressing affection for such a yeah. retrograde movie, such a white supremacist, imperialist, colonialist yeah movie there was a lot of nazi punching yeah so right. i think, they, I think you, know, you can punch a nazi i mean now you can punch anyone who you even just accuse of being a nazi even if they were just a person walking down the street who was wearing a trump hat the, the people who are blowing the darts also want us to touch yes. the idol right? the idol in this case is a world free from assumptions about each other on the basis of how we look it's a world free from bigotry towards each other it's a world of big-heartedness and generosity and an absence of bigotry I would have thought that we're actually quite close. Now, this is where I sound really naive because people say, don't you understand how deep the strain of white supremacy runs? And 
I can understand a case can be made for that. And I can also understand that a case can be made for the vision of the world that Barack Obama holds and that Martin Luther King held, which was the promised land is actually quite close if we just choose to kind of tilt our heads a little and sort of see it and choose to ramp up. I mean, white people need to ramp up our conversational intolerance of each other's racism and bigotry by 10%, but not by 10,000%, so that we're creating dungeons of our own Marxist dreaming where everyone gets pilloried and, and hidden away for not quite getting the memo about using the correct transgender pronoun in precisely the correct way. I mean, your point about horse racing and your own veganism is an interesting one, Ashi, because as we parade through this brave new world of 2020, deciding what statues to tear down and what historical figures to shun. Winston Churchill is the latest one. We're not allowed to have any affection or admiration for his saving of the entire future of Western civilization in 1940 anymore because he was racist towards Bangladeshis. The thing that pops into my head is, okay, let's be moralistic towards the beliefs that people had in the past, but let's also maybe divert just 1% of our attention to the things that we might be doing right now that people in the future who have the benefit of hindsight that you now enjoy will look back on you with. I mean, one of those big ones, and I did a bit on this in my Melbourne Comedy Festival show, is eating meat. They did a whole thing about imagine an alien coming down to Earth and asking us why we drink milk, for example, and you have to explain from first principles that there's this animal that we've bred it's like a bison or a buffalo, but we sort of bred it with a cat or something, so it's quite domesticated, and we rip its babies away, and then we just keep producing the sort of hormonal, viscous baby juice, and we just keep suckling on that. And the alien's like, you suckle on a bovine tit? And you're like, no, no, obviously we don't actually suckle on it. Like, we just we put it in jars, and then we transport it to each other. And they're like, can you breed this animal just for this? And we're like, well, we don't just do that. We also eat its ass cheeks because its ass cheeks are delicious. So, you know, we have some of them we take the baby hormone juice out of and drink it, and then we have another version. We don't do the same one. We're not perverts. You know, we don't drink the milk and eat the ass cheek of the same one, but we have different versions of the kind of cat bison, and we eat some of their ass cheeks and we drink some of their hormone baby juice. In 50 years' time, it's entirely possible, I think it's quite likely, that people will look back, especially on factory farming, and go, how on earth could people have done that when they knew that animals felt pain? They knew that animals were capable of having experiences that felt something like what, for example, a human baby might feel, and yet they persisted in this incarceration and torture of animals on a global scale. Well, it'd be nice if the people who are so certain about the ways in which Winston Churchill was an abomination would spend just a moment thinking about that and whether or not people in 50 years' time might judge them on the basis of that. I mean, my position is I just want us all to have a little bit more humility and a little bit less self-certainty about how great we are in comparison to everybody else, both historically and in around us today. We are so well-trained to be instantly reactionary and instantly outraged. What are the 
push-ups, the deadlifts, the sit-ups of the mind that we can practice every day to stop ourselves from being so reactionary. And I, and I, and I think this is a very important thing to remember because, and I try to tell this to people who, you know, I've taken Twitter, Facebook, Instagram off of my yeah. phone. My wife has my screen to passcode. I cannot access it on my phone even if I type the URL and I cannot get really? in Really? What does she have on you? Screen time is a thing on that iPhone. Yeah. It's a self, like a pokey self-exclusion. Wow. Um, like if you only have a half hour, give yourself a half hour a day or 20 minutes a day or whatever. But I was then just putting the passcode in when the 20 minutes was done because I'm an mm. addict mm. and I was unable to stop myself finding that dopamine, right? So I, I have self-exclusion in these things. But if other people choose to engage, and this is what I tell people all the time, if you get angry, get upset, share something in anger with a retweet or a share on Facebook that amplifies the thing that you've just read about. If you've just read something that comes from a, something like a, a questionable kind of source, you are nothing more than a marionette at the end of a string. You have now been jiggled by someone who in great probability, certainly around an election time, is paying to jiggle you is paying to amplify you, to pay you to get upset, to pay you. You are what the Russians will call a useful idiot. You are the one who is amplifying weird propaganda. And I don't have a tinfoil hat on. This shit has been proven. <laughs> you know, this is evidence-based claim here, Josh. <laughs> so if you find yourself angrily retweeting or, or, or sharing on Facebook, you are doing the job of someone who has paid Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever to put their scary article about why all... If you trace it back far enough, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, that's right. It might not be a promoted post that you're actually sharing, but it's probably someone who's sharing something that was shared by someone who was shared by someone that was written by some outlet that had a motivation for it. Well along the way back. So considering we do have to, other people who are normal and don't have my brain get to engage with this stuff normally, what are the push-ups, the sit-ups, the crunches that we can do to get ourselves and ready so we can be emotionally agile enough to engage with this shit? I think there are a couple of good ones. One is don't allow certain opinions to become proxies for what you think the problem is. So let me take an example. If you're a feminist, as I consider myself to be, and that I want equality between all the sexes, and I have huge respect and admiration, especially for second wave feminists like Jermaine Greer and Camille Paglia and all the things that they did. If you hear a dude say that there aren't as many women at Google because women aren't aren't as into tech shit, that can immediately ring your feminist alarm bells and go, this guy is a douchebag, sexist, misogynist. Now, he may be, but he may also be a professor of evolutionary biology who has some good reasons for what he's talking about. And you may be unaware of the studies that show that if you get a 1,000 women and a 1,000 men and you poll them about would you like to spend a day either trying to resolve a conflict between a group of people to bring them closer together or taking apart widgets and putting the widgets back together, there is a gender difference. You do notice more women going for the former and more men going for the latter. So you can believe that there are differences between the sexes and not be a misogynist or a sexist, but it's very hard to say that without someone instantly slowing you into a bucket. You know, we've seen a similar thing happen recently with JK Rowling and transgender rights, for example. A lot of those second wave feminists from Jermaine Greer to Rowling being influenced by them and so on, believe that there's something fundamentally precious about womanhood that is being undermined by the more extreme versions of trans ideology where any person who was 
identified as a male at birth and who's grown up as a boy can then turn around and declare themselves a female and access female-only spaces and female-only refuges. There have been cases, for example, in Canada where the Equal Rights Commission in Canada have forced you know, women's rape shelters and refuge shelters to allow women with pen- who have penises and who present as men to be in amongst female rape victims because it would be prejudicial against the trans woman with a penis to not allow her into a space where women are supposed to be protected from men. So this all gets a bit confusing, but when you raise questions about that sort of thing, like JK Rowling, then you are immediately a transphobic, what's called a TERF, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, a, a transphobic bigot, in other words. You haven't heard that term, Osher? I can see on your face. I do love a good acronym. A TERF is what the extreme trans activists and provocateurs call any feminist who wants to reassert the, I suppose, validity or even existence of femininity and womanhood as a biological concept. So these all become terribly muddy waters. And, you know, obviously at the moment we're grappling with racial components, and I would say the push-ups and the flexes that you can do there are similar, not assuming that if a person, for example, expresses concerns specifically about police violence as opposed to police racism, that that means that they're a secret racist who's trying to shift the conversation away from racism. Or the person who thinks that statues of people who lived in a different time who also happen to be racist shouldn't be torn down because they were products of their own time. So there's a, a certain generosity of spirit and caution about demonizing people for having beliefs that you immediately associate with demons. They might not be demons. They might just be good people who have those beliefs and you could interrogate them. And then, yeah, I think the flip side of that is also just having a little bit of intellectual curiosity about how robust your own beliefs are. I mean, this is the hardest thing, but I think it's actually something that I've always felt is like critically important and a great virtue to sort of keep asking myself why I believe the things that I believe and whether or not they're true. And when I see some of the anger from the new progressive left and some of the self-certainty coming from people who are who have recently graduated from critical race theory classes at university or critical gender studies classes about how much more right they are than all the delusional idiots who've ruined the world they strike me as having more of a leninist trotskyite revolutionary fervor than uh, a willingness to interrogate their own beliefs so i think it's deeper than don't share something on facebook it's more about Question whether or not it's probably actually true that 40% of the population are evil if you're a really political person. You know, so, like, so take climate change, which is something close to your heart and my heart. One can be tempted to think that anyone who's willing to vote for a party that ignores and downplays the threat of climate chaos is a morally abhorrent person like this is the one issue on which it's incumbent on us to figure out a way for our grandchildren to not have to be enduring lives of enormous tumult and costliness at the very least and dystopian environments at the very worst and to sort of whistle past the graveyard not giving a shit fiddling with deck chairs on the titanic to mix my metaphors is this is something that I find it really hard to appreciate, but I just don't believe that 40% of the population are evil. So there's something broken in my understanding of their thinking.
and part of the job is to be more generous and part of the job is to actually talk to them and figure out what they actually believe. And sometimes there'll be crazy radicals who don't understand the science and don't believe it. But most of the time, there'll be decent people who have different priorities and are putting a different balance on their expectation of technology getting us out of this, a different expectation on the importance of economic growth, fueling the sorts of prosperity that we're going to need to dig ourselves out of it and so on. Yeah. So I don't know if that's an answer, but that's my sense. Well, I, I asked about what are the kind of mental exercises or what are the push-ups and sit-ups that we can do to strengthen ourselves against, to just like, we're just getting deep into metaphors there. How can we find a way to get out of that yacht and get in our own boat? How can we get the strength to swim mm. by ourselves? Uh, the first thing you're saying is to look a little deeper and to go well, ask why would that person believe that? Then give them, I would say, give them the benefit of doubt and go, well, like, I would need to believe that this 40% of the population are evil yeah. human beings. And that's a, that's an interesting place to start. I, I guess the, the, the one thing that I, and I wonder if this resonates with you, one thing that I always remember, and it was, and it came from, of all places, the actor Michael Sheen, mm. who played uh, David Frost, who I didn't realise was actually one of my childhood heroes until when I saw the film Frost Nixon, I was like, oh, that's the guy. That's the reason I wanted to do this. Because he used to be on telly back in Australia back in the day. And I'm, I got to interview Michael Sheen for the film Tron Legacy. And I said, mate, you're an exceptional baddie in this. What's the key to being a really good baddie? And he said, well, I think the, the key to being a good baddie is that everybody believes they're doing the right thing. Exactly. And that just hit me in the heart. I have to remind myself that Josh Frydenberg truly believes that I, me, Osha, I do not know what's good for me. He is, out of the goodness of his heart, going to make this sweeping fucking economic move that is going to make my country better than I could imagine all that I could want, I just don't know what's good for me. And um, he's lucky that he's making this call on my behalf. And uh, he's out of the graciousness of his intellect and the goodness of the friends that he can call up, he's going to make this move. And uh, I'm lucky that he's alive. But even there, Osha, you're, be you're falling into the trap that we're talking about. You're depicting his worldview in a completely ungenerous way. I mean, if you spoke to him, it's you obviously don't truly believe that he thinks that he knows better than you do. That's not his point of view. That's not what Michael Sheen's talking about. Michael Sheen's point of view is that Josh Frydenberg thinks that you and he have some differences at the periphery, but you both share a commitment to broad liberal principles and to justice and to economic prosperity. And he would, he would concede that you differ about the importance of the urgency of taking action on climate change. And he would probably argue that his point of view is not better than yours because he knows better. His point of view is informed by the messy realities of what his job is, which is actually governing. And he can want to do all the things that you want to do until the cows come home. But he would say probably that the best way to achieve the best outcome for Australia, both environmentally and also economically, is to recognise how small our global contribution to carbon emissions is. And so therefore to try to play the dance of sustaining economic growth and maintaining our, you know, milking as much of our investments out of carbon and coal as we possibly can, while at the same time encouraging the entities that really make the difference, aka the EU, the US and China, to do what they can to usher in a, a renewable future all the while understanding that he has to balance a far-right flank of his own Liberal Party and some crazy people in the National Party who completely disagree with him because he was a climate believer, 
you know, and he was quite passionate about climate until he became an energy minister. So he would probably say the only respect in which he knows better than you is that he understands the messy realities of how you get things done in Canberra better but your heart's in the right place and that your vision is is apt. That would be the actually generous way of articulating his point of view, not saying that <laughs> he thinks he's superior to you. I appreciate, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you calling me on that. And I am very grateful to hear your take on that. And I'm grateful that in this simple exchange, you and I have just demonstrated probably in many ways the the, the level of understanding that is required. You can't just go... Josh Frydenberg is a, a straight white bad man. I mean, you can. It's just that doesn't get you very far. But it's, and it, yeah, exactly. It's not yeah, real. It's yeah. not true. And there are nuances to everything. And I guess that's a very important thing to understand that, and this is the shitty part, you might come off the back of COVID-19 lockdown and go, oops-a-daisy, my jeans don't fit anymore. I've been doing nothing but eat and watch all of Money Heist. <laughs> I should know how to speak Spanish because I've been getting direct translations for hours and hours, but I don't. I know, you know, I know, hola, that's all I know. And now I'm a little overweight. I want to be thin. Fuck, this is going to take some work. This is probably going to take the same amount of time it took to put this weight on to take it off. Okay, there's going to be some work here. And we, we kind of understand that there's a process to losing that weight. And we can't just click our fingers and have it go away. Similarly, we have to understand the uncomfortable truth is when we want to find a way to understand another human being, you can't just go, they are this way, I am this way, end of story. No, you truly want to understand what's going on. You actually have to take a bit of time. You have to work on something. You have to be willing to sacrifice something. Like if you're losing weight, you have to be willing to sacrifice eating chocolate every night while you watch Money Heist. You have to understand that a part of what you believe, which is directly connected to your ego, may come under threat by questioning or having this mm. conversation and you may have to admit, well, maybe Josh Frydenberg did uh, have a pretty passionate decision and then he met the the weird guys from the National Party that crack whips and fuck, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's more complicated. Yeah. And maybe maybe he thinks that if he becomes Prime Minister, there'll be a lot more good that he can do that is not confined to just being a purist on this particular issue, which would lead him to be re- relegated to the back bench. You know, people have lots of different reasons for doing things. But I think what you're pointing to is actually sort of the crux of all of this, which is a word called diversity, exposing oneself to a diverse range of different ideas from different people who have different backgrounds, who will enrich and round out and complicate your assumptions about what other people think. And one of the reasons for launching Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Sepps, my new podcast, is to try to expand our definition of what diversity means. Because at the moment, we talk about diversity, I think, as a superficial punchline, where if you have enough trans women of color on the panel, then that's going to be diversity. And if you cast your panel conversation or your television show or your writer's room with an Asian lesbian and an Indigenous woman, and it's just as long as there aren't any straight white men, then it's going to be a playground of diversity. The problem with that is what, you're, what you should actually be aiming for if you're in an intellectual line of work, and I think we should all be in an intellectual line of work, at least frivolously at home, if not professionally, should be a diverse range of different opinions and different ideas. And you do sometimes turn on panel shows and see 
the token diverse individuals all saying essentially the same thing. So like understanding where Josh Frydenberg is coming from is an interesting sort of diversity that a lot of people on the left are not exposing themselves to. They know what the position of every diverse minority is, but they don't actually know the position of what the suburban voter who voted for ScoMo and lives in the heartland is. And this is another thing that I think we're getting fairly carried away with where, you know, I have a friend who's also a podcaster who, who is getting torn apart online because she hasn't had enough people of color on her podcast. You know, I'm putting together season one of uncomfortable conversations and my mind keeps going, all right, what's going to be the cultural backlash to me for the fact that the first three episodes are all men, right? One's an indigenous man, but the other two are white men. And I really don't want to give a shit. I actually don't think it's important to give a shit. I don't think it's relevant. I think it's a problem that white men have had as much power as they have, so they end up in positions of authority and excellence more. That's a problem. But, like, for the past two years, I was doing a show on Radio National, Australia's public broadcaster, on Sunday afternoons at four called The People Versus, and we would take one big hot-button issue, we would have people around the country chiming in on it who are lay people, and we'd get one or two global experts to talk about that thing. Now, the pressure to make sure that we were quote-unquote diverse, meaning people with different skin colours and ideally women, was relentless and intense. But when you're fishing for the one person in the world who's the biggest expert on a particular subject, it just is still the case that that's quite frequently a white male. Now, that's not a great state of affairs, but you don't solve that state of affairs by trying to exclude white males into their precise proportion when you're dealing in expertise. Now, it's true there are too many politicians who are white men. There are too many CEOs who are white men. How do we get around that? It's probably pretty complicated. Not as many women want to be titans of industry as men do. Should the NRL, the National Rugby League, have an equal proportion of Asians as other nationalities? And why not? I mean, under the way that we think about diversity at the moment, if you need to have an equal number of of ethnicities and minorities represented on panels, then why not on a football court? Should the University of Queensland coronavirus vaccine researchers, which is one of the world's leading units in Brisbane, should they have Indigenous researchers on their staff? Is that Would that be important? Should they fire one of their white male researchers to have an Indigenous person? And if not, then why not? By the logic of the people who are most obsessed with diversity. The Simpsons have just announced that they're not going to be having any uh, white actors play any characters of colour. The actor in Big Mouth, the, the other animated American show who voices the young black girl, has resigned because only black people should be voicing black characters. I mentioned Faulty Towers being taken off the air. Four episodes of 30 Rock have been taken off the air because they made fun of blackface. Gone with the Wind has been removed. <laughs> I saw a criticism of The Shining. This is a, an actual review of the horror film, The Shining. The Stanley Kubrick, Jack Nicholson. Stanley Kubrick, Jack Nicholson. And this is an actual review on ScreenRant.com saying, Stanley Kubrick's 1980 psychological horror film, The Shining, has not aged well for a contemporary audience. Adapted from Stephen King's novel of the same name, the film follows the Torrance family at the Haunted Overlook Hotel 
featuring an array of problematic and triggering instances of domestic violence and child abuse. While movies have the power to highlight and examine important issues such as these, Kubrick's film and characters brush them off as unimportant and permissible. Um, <laughs> did they watch the same film that I did? Because they certainly weren't unimportant or permissible in the, it, in the movie that I saw. I mean, it's getting to the stage where you can't depict bad things without being complicit in the bad thing. Gone with the wind is gone because it depicts slavery from a point of view that was appropriate at the time and completely inappropriate nowadays. And even in having conversations about these things, we have to do this tokenistic white saviour bullshit of casting appropriately skin-coloured people to have the standing to be able to talk about them. Now, if, we, if we're talking about human experience, if we're talking about your experience, your lived experience of racism, then of course you need to talk to a person of colour because white people don't experience racism. If you're talking about sexism, of course you need to be talking to a woman. If you're talking about the lived experience of transgender bigotry, of course you need to be talking to a trans person. If you're talking about the lived experience of experiencing homophobia, you have to be talking to a queer person. But that does not mean that if you're having intellectual conversations about, for example, what policy settings you should have, if you're discussing ethics about what's right or wrong, about, say, the morality of abortion or some other hot-button cultural issue, if you're talking about the rate of immigration, if you're analysing the ability of certain minorities to assimilate into wider culture, if that's something that you want them to be doing, if you're assessing the success of multiculturalism, if you're figuring out what you want to be doing medically with young people who claim to be born into the wrong sexed body, these are conversations in which we all have standing. We're all citizens. We're all grown-ups, I thought we were. We're all capable of a level of empathy that says, all right, now that you've described to me what it's like to be a black woman in Australia, I'm going to incorporate that knowledge into my brain and I'm not such an idiot that I'm incapable of balancing that against all of the other competing interests that we've got going on in this country to see how exactly we should respond to that. This idea that only black women can talk about black women's issues and only females can talk about feminism and that straight men have had their time so now they have to be forcibly excluded, A, it's anti-intellectual bullshit, and B, it's going to backfire. Because, frankly, things don't go well for minorities when minorities give the majority the right to exclude people because of the way they look or the way they think. In the long run, things are better for minorities if we're all a little bit tolerant towards each other and want us all to be in the room. This kind of exclusionary attitude where white people shouldn't be part of the conversation about racism and men shouldn't be part of the conversation about feminism is going to end up essentially stoking a backlash, I fear. I mean, the whole idea now that's becoming very fashionable, that one of the number one books on the New York Times bestseller list now is White Fragility, written by a white female academic about how white people who deny that they're racist are actually the most racist of all because they just can't see the white supremacist superstructure within which they express their racism because they're so blind to it. So white people should think about themselves as white, understand their white privilege, conceive of their whiteness as a thing. And I look at that, and this is what you have to believe. Essentially, if you reject this, then you are now a racist. I mean, at least in the pages of, you know, the more woke press, which is becoming all the big mainstream publications, essentially, what I'm saying is such a taboo that there will be many people listening to this who are hearing, and this comes back to what I was saying earlier about 
don't allow one belief to lead you to believe that the person espouting that belief is the asshole that you think they must be. Like separate the claim and actually analyze the claim on its own merits. So here we are encouraging white people to think about themselves as white. I mean, what could possibly go wrong for people of color? Can you not see that encouraging people to think about themselves in identitarian terms is exactly what gave us Trump, is exactly what is causing the rise of the far right in Europe, is what is entrenching the power of dictators like Orban in Hungary, racist dictators. This is dangerous shit. And we're playing around with it like we're school kids with a gun. And because we're all on the, all on the right side, we're on the progressive lefty side, everything's going to be hunky-dory, it's all going to be okay because we're the anti-racists. So just punch a Nazi, go to a protest, tell all white people to fuck off and go home. It's not going to work out well. <laughs> you tell white people to think of themselves as white people, don't open that box. We've been there before. Don't tell them to think of themselves as white people in order to get in touch with how oppressive they are. Because a few of those people who you're telling to think of themselves as white people will start hating Jews and gays. And I'm a gay Jew and I don't want it. So fuck off. <laughs> and if that's not my fucking promo, I don't know what he. <laughs> oh, man. What's interesting about this, Josh, is you're not as a smart and respected person. Uh, you are, I respect your intelligence enormously. I respect your critical thinking enormously. I respect the place that you take these questions from and how seriously you take this stuff enormously. Josh, you're not saying anything new. You're merely looking back at history at the last times we've done this and you are clearly just going, okay, look at the graph last time. Here's this point, this point, this point. Look where that line ended up. We're here. <laughs> it's happening again. Yes. And just because you're on the right side this time, it comes back to what you were saying about Martin Sheen, Asha. Oh, oh Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen, sorry. The bad people thought they were right too. It's not good enough to say, yes, but this time our identitarianism is different. Our racism is anti-racist because it's pushing back against white people. So the identitarianism of the Ku Klux Klan was terrible, but the identitarianism of a violent Black Lives Matter faction is acceptable because it's pushing back against power structures. Fine, you've got your reasons for thinking violence is okay. Of course you think that your reasons for being an identitarian are flawless, whereas people in the past were not. They thought that too. Have some fucking humility. Uh, that's an important thing to recall. I'm, I'm guessing that you're a busy man, and I'm, we have been talking for an hour. Uh, we could probably talk a lot, a lot more. You said you've already got a couple of episodes lined up before we started rolling. You mentioned you have Stan Grant lined up. Yeah. An extraordinary human being and a very, very clever man. Stan should be... He should just be president of everything, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, his we we've actually already taped the episode, and you know we spoke for almost two hours. And his level of nuance and grace as a representative of Indigenous Australia and a bridge builder between people of colour and white people is uh, tremendous. And I think he's someone we should all envy and look up to. We've also got Oliver Berkman is a fantastic columnist for The Guardian who lives in New York who essentially says that we should turn off the news. We pay too much attention to the news and we are way too well informed and we, it's sort of the episode is in defense of ignorance. So each episode of Uncomfortable Conversations, I want to ask one sort of uncomfortable question and complicate people's ideas about it. So with Stan Grant, I just wanted to ask, am I racist, essentially? 
with Oliver Berkman, I want to ask, should we not consume the news? And then I've got a virologist and an entrepreneur who invests in biotech companies who's investing in the brink of like uh, virus vaccines and stuff to talk about from New York about the race for a vaccine, the way in which viruses are incredibly sophisticated and fantastic. And because I'm a bit of a science geek, this is more of an excuse to geek out about the weird complexities of virology than talking about culture wars. So this isn't going to be a podcast where you're endlessly hearing me whine about political correctness gone mad. It is an attempt to actually have bigger conversations about things that the rest of the media doesn't spend enough time looking at. I'm already on board because for a start, I've just finished Rutger Bregman's book, Humankind, and um, I had him on the show. Yeah, right. And I guess his thing is like the news only reports the exception and presents it as the reality. Yes. And it isn't. It just isn't. If you're constantly reacting to that, particularly, I guess, now when news is so easily manipulated, it's Mm. super more important than ever to just put your fucking phone down, go outside and do some gardening. (laughs) Hang out with your kids. Let's go about your day because I I cannot change. But but, but I will say one thing about the news, and I did bring this up. I did look it up earlier. So if you did see my eye line go away, it's because the news is just extraordinary. And the language of the news and the place where you stand in the news and talking about identity and and labeling is very important. I saw this headline today and I sent it to the Batuta boys because I'm like, it's blowing my mind that Batuta-like articles are actually now reality. Yes. This is from the Thai Inquirer. All right, so this is a Thai newspaper. A Thai newspaper in Australia or in Thailand? In Thailand. Okay, right. Foreign affairs. Unrest continues for a seventh day in former British colony. Unrest and protest has continued for a seventh straight day in the former British colony of the United States as the government vowed to use the military to end demonstrations, (laughs) US media reported on Tuesday. The protest began in the small province of Minnesota. Located in the agrarian Middle West over the killing of an ethnic minority by state security forces. Protests led by the minority black community have erupted throughout the country with the minority group calling for equal rights and better treatment from the government. No, they're having a laugh. They're having a laugh. Surely. That's got to be an American expat who's living in Bangkok and is like, I'm going to write about my country the way my country writes about other places. But even so, That's the, uh, uh, the gentleman's name is uh, Cod, Cod Satrasayang. Um, okay. So you're being racist again and assuming he can't be an American because he has a funny Asian no name. Problem. This is the white supremacy of Austria showing through. And you're probably right. But yeah, just using the language, using the language of that yeah. uh, Western superiority back upon the, <laughs> the Americans. I thought you did that. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of language, the final thought about that in terms of language and race and everything would be when you ask about what push-ups we can do, giving people a pass on, on the words they use would be another big one that I forgot. Because like, it's becoming the case that if you don't speak about race in precisely the way that a postgraduate student of racial studies would speak about it, that you're considered racist. But you and I both know people who live in, for example, rural and regional Australia who might only have a high school education, who don't have a racist bone in their body in terms of the way they actually think about people and treating everybody equally. But they would sound pretty redneck to the people who are protesting in the Black Lives Matter, Indigenous Lives Matter marches. And we should not make it a kind of a social status marker that who can speak the, in the most perfectly correct way using the most sophisticated university language about white supremacy and white privilege and white guilt 
and people of color than so on. Proving your anti-racist bona fides should not be the goal. The goal should be to not be racist. <laughs> this is true. I could talk to you all day, but until we speak next time, try and stay away from the the massive multiplayer online role-playing game that is Twitter where <laughs> RWNJs and SJWs try and get headshots on each other in front of their teams to try and score points. Thank you, Osher. I will. It's not reality. It's not the real thing. It's not a human being standing in front of you who's probably a nice enough bloke, just has never met someone from Sudan uh, and doesn't understand that they also want their kids to be fed and looked after and have a good education mm. and they'll probably get along really well because they both like the same football team. Uh, <laughs> and that's really all it is. <laughs> I love you, man. You're the best ever. Thank you. Love you too. I'm going to go for a walk through the park and play with a dog. That was Josh Zepps, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening. I'm actually on Josh's show, Uncomfortable Conversations, and it wasn't that uncomfortable, but it did get uncomfortable, which is good. It's important to be challenged in a conversation, and I'm really grateful that Josh does it. It's great. It's like when I speak to my scientist friend, Ruben. He's like, oh, really? Where's the evidence? And you have to go, oh, but I heard it. And he goes, yeah, mate, I don't know. That journal's not really that reliable. Who paid for the research? <laughs> and then you've got to go back to square one. It's great. But if you do like what you hear, I would encourage you to check out the episode uh, you can start with the one that I'm on, or you can go the one with Stan Grant, if you like. It's a cracker. Uncomfortable Conversations is what the show's called, and you can find it where you find your podcast. Also, find him on Twitter and Instagram, Josh Zepps, J-O-S-H-S-Z-E-P-S. Thanks heaps for being here. Thanks for being a part of the show. Thank you so much, Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, Andy Marr, my audio producer, Mike Mills, my music producer, and Hayley Van Spanier, who does all the social work, social social media work. <laughs> <laughs> no, she comes around here and does a, a welfare check on me. Well, she kind of does, to be honest. Hey, um, see you on Masked Singer tonight. It's the big grand finale. We've built a green screen that would make James Cameron envious. I kind of half expected Jar Jar Binks to show up in the middle. I know that was James Cameron and George Lucas. So I know they're two different people. I don't care. But we built a massive green screen and we actually pulled off a finale that is worthy of uh, excellence. And I'm thrilled that you finally get to see it. And everyone's heads are coming off on Monday. It's going to be a killer. So, uh Amazing. We did it, and I can't wait for you to see it. So that's tonight, Masked Singer, grand finale for 2020. And I'll see you as well for Batch on Wednesday and Thursday. Thanks heaps for looking after yourselves. I know you are. Just do it some more. Just remember that, as my dear friend Danny Minogue says, you are your own health and safety officer. If someone's using a mask as a chin guard, you're the one that has to say, hey, you, you don't know if I'm sick. You need to protect yourself. You find a way to say it. I don't know. But, you know, if people are standing too close to you, you've got to be your health and safety officer. You've got to keep yourself safe. You've got to do it. This is it. This is the world we're living in, and this is the adjustments we're going to have to make for some time. And it's going to be all right, but we all have to make a stand for it, and it'll be okay. All right? All right. Come find me on Thursday on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Ginsburg. I'm probably there through the week as well. Hopefully on my bike, but on Thursday we'll have a chat. All right. I've got to jet and buy some things on eBay. Or do I? Yeah, I do. All right. Love you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.